This episode is brought to you by Canela Bistro and Wine Bar, serving Spanish plates and over 70 wines from Spain in the heart of San Francisco. Visit us socially at Canela SF and canelasf.com. You're listening to Food, Wine, and the Culinary Mind with Matt Schuster. We're getting inside the brilliant and delicious minds of remarkable culinary individuals. We're telling stories, cutting up, and breaking it down. Welcome. I am here with my friend Erica Almeida Mooney. Hi, Matt. Erica is a chef and the proprietor of Lanyette Peak Vineyards, and more importantly, a longtime friend, one of my first friends in San Francisco. Yes, you were one of mine too. Fuzzies. Mm-hmm. Good memories. Yep. So we both know Joyce. We do. We, I met her through Draker's, which I think you met her through mm-hmm. Draker's too. Mm-hmm. Um, she was one of those chefs that would come in and you'd have to pick her up at her house. And bring her. I think she was the only chef that we would. She pick her was. Up. She was that special. Yes, yeah. and she also was a little bit of a thing. Still is a little bit of a thing. <laughs> She's a thing. She's a thing. <laughs> and at the time, I was driving a 1999 Jeep Wrangler, mm-hmm. which maybe wasn't the most luxurious of vehicles for her to be in. And highway friendly, maybe not. Not so highway <laughs> friendly. And she lived on like this really steep hill yes, and that I would feel like the car was, like when she opened up the door, I was scared that like the car was gonna like fall <laughs> Flintstone style on top of her. So, so, so Joyce was, was, was always a good memory for me. She was a really one of my, my early mentors. We would have, as you said, so we would pick her up. We worked in a cooking school and she would teach classes and and we would pick her up. And just, I remember having these, these amazing conversations with her on the about 45 minute drive into work. Mm And we would just talk about everything. We talked about a lot of, uh, a lot we talked about ingredients. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she just was such a knowledgeable person about really, you couldn't stump her. Yeah. Um, And, and it really, you know, make, make sense from, from, from all the things that she's done that I'm going to, that I'm going to tell you. Joyce has done so much. She's most notably known for her restaurant Square One, which was really a pioneer of Mediterranean flavors in San Francisco for over 10 years, as well as the chef and owner of Cafe Quadro. She was a KQED newsroom food reporter. She was a columnist for Bon Appetit magazine. She was a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle. She has taught cooking classes throughout her life. She authored 29 books including Back to Square One, which won both a Julia Child and James Beard Award, Kitchen Conversations, Cucina Hebraica, Sephardic Flavors, Saffron Shores, Antipasti, Spanish Tapas, Sensational Small Plates from Spain, and her only non-cookbook, Inside the California Food Revolution, which we talk about during this interview. Um, It's interesting to me how uh, in the research of professional kitchens and how they've evolved over the years it was also always a very male dominated field that men would kind of get into these kitchens and especially in France and in Europe they would run them like little armies Uh, each person had their own station and they were in charge of whatever you know one person was in charge of potatoes one person was in charge of meat and they really ran it like a little army um to the point where people were called captains and such it's, it's interesting that you say that because we we get into and we talk about the difference between male-led kitchens and female-led mm-hmm. kitchens well it's so it's it's so funny to me because you think of where we have come from society where women have come from and we are traditionally uh, supposed to be the nurturer we are supposed to be in the heart of the home which is usually the kitchen Uh, We're supposed to feed and gather uh, and be really sort of nurtured through love and through food and through through taking care of our family. And it's crazy to me that professionally men would think that they could run a kitchen. 
um, and that women <laughs> shouldn't be in there. Mm. Because where do you think we have spent the past hundred years? We've spent the last hundred right. years in your kitchen, buddy. <laughs> so why don't you scoot on over? And maybe, you know, maybe that poor little guy that didn't get that last piece of grit off of the lettuce, maybe you don't have to yell at him and throw something at him. Maybe you could just say, you know what, sweetie, let's try a little harder. <laughs> You know, it's uh, well, I'm excited for you to listen to the episode because because it, it's really we, we do spend some time talking about that. So if you if you want to know more about Joyce Goldstein, you can check out her website, which is JoyceGoldstein.com. And really, I, I, I can't say enough, uh, enough good things about her. She really uh, I've ne- I don't think you could stump the lady with 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 food questions. She really is is just such a delight to talk to. She has so much uh, information in her head and she's not shy. She's not shy. She is. And she is still sharp as a tack. And um, not only is she an aficionado on most things food related, her son is too. She's raised a pretty, a pretty interesting son as well, who is also uh, an aficionado of ingredients and wine. So, and above all that, she also sent me home with like 20 different preserves. So her last book was called Jam Sessions. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And now I'm picturing Joyce in like a (laughs) tie-dye t-shirt with like a little bandana on her head, jamming out to the dead, making Making, preserves. Making preserves. That's exactly what I'm saying. So she, she sent me with, with literally like, like a dozen different kinds of, of preserves. And, um, I've already cracked into like three of them and they are delicious. She really has an amazing knack for, for, for flavor profiles. And she's really a master, um, really can't say enough. So, um, Please now get comfortable and let's listen to this episode of Joyce Goldstein. We're sitting in her uh, dining room table and she has two, over 2000 cookbooks and they're all, they're all around. It's like being in a, in like a Harry Potter library full of, full of cookbooks. And uh, it's just, it's, it was such an amazing setting to, to do this interview with Joyce. So here we go. Okay, Joyce, so in 2014, your revolutionary book, California Food Revolution, hit the stands. Tell me a little bit about the process for that book, where it came from, and just a little, uh, you know, some, 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 some knowledge about what, what happens in that book. Okay, well, uh, University of California Press came to me and said, it's about time that we have a history of the California food movement. And since you are a chef who also writes, because I wrote for the paper and I you know, had written books, we'd like you to do it. And so, of course, I said yes. And then I set about to interview everybody I could. Uh, I interviewed over 200 people. Um, not only chefs, but purveyors and farmers and restaurant designers in front of the house, back of the house, um, just anybody that tangentially was connected to the change in our food. And it took just trying to get them, you know, make an appointment to talk to them or interview them by phone, and then getting the interviews transcribed. My granddaughter, Elena, transcribed most of the interviews. Wow. She's really fast. Wow. And every once in a while, she meets the chef, and she says, oh, I transcribed your interview. <laughs> so she knows more about behind them the than yeah, yeah. behind the scenes. And then after I had all this information, you know, you mm-hmm. sit down and you read it, and they're very good interviews. Uh, everybody was really pretty forthcoming, except for maybe Bruce Martin in L.A. But everybody, <laughs> everybody was. So quite... you started to pick out some themes. Well, then, then I realized I have to pick the themes of the chapters mm-hmm. and then see whose interviews fit the best. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you want to include everybody, and you can't mm-hmm. because you know otherwise you weigh seven hundred pounds. And mm-hmm. then you have to take the quote and edit it a little bit because some of them go on too long. So that whole process took over two years. Wow. 
And then writing, I had never written this kind of a history before. Because no recipes. No. Right. I write cookbooks. Mm -hmm. So this was a whole other thing, and I wanted to get the chronology right. And, um, and then as you're writing about a topic, you realize it leads to something else. Mm-hmm. Like all of a sudden, you know, California had the most women chefs of any place in the world. Mm. So that after you talk about all the women chefs, then you start to think, did they run their kitchens any differently than the male chefs? Mm. And then, of course, you realize, yes, there's a huge difference. Yeah, what, so wh- wh- well, what came uh, out of that? That's very interesting. Well... The male kitchen is mostly patterned on the escoffier, military, chef, sous chef, chef de partie, everybody with a title and, you know, the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, the women's chefs ran collaborative kitchens hmm. where the food would come in, they'd have a game plan, they'd taste the ingredients, they decide, well, what do we want to do with this today? And then everybody had input. Now a lot of the chefs are starting to do this. But in the beginning, like Bruce Hill, when he started, it was a very classic, you know, kitchen structure. Mm -hmm. But now at Pico, he and the chefs decide what they're going to cook. And if if one of the cooks has an idea, it goes on the menu. Uh, So that's a different kind of collaboration. But in the beginning, guys didn't do that. Like Thomas Keller told me that, you know, he designed the menu, he designed the food, and then they did the work. And he said, it's exhausting. At a certain point, you want other people to contribute their ideas, because otherwise you're going to burn to a crisp really fast. Well, and there's also the idea that you're better as a collective than you are as an individual. Not all the time, but I think in many cases. It depends on the kind of restaurant you have. Right. Uh, We had a Mediterranean restaurant at Square One. I knew more about that food than anybody, also because I have a library, I like doing research, mm-hmm. I know how to find the information. Most people coming out of cooking schools are just, you know, good cooks. They don't look for it that way. They look for the ingredients and what they're going to do with it. And, you know, but if, if you're opening a Mediterranean restaurant in 1984, you're educating the dining right, public. So you have a responsibility not to fuck it up. Mm-hmm. You know, if mm-hmm. you're doing a Moroccan dish, let it be accurate. Mm-hmm. Use the right spices. If you're doing a Turkish dish with um, a kebab on bread and it has a yogurt sauce and it has a tomato sauce, what are the spices in the sauce? And then you have your staff taste it. They explain it to the guests. But for when we open, this food was virgin territory for mm. people. They didn't know anything about it. Now, yes, you see romesco on a menu, you know what it is. Mm-hmm. In 1984, you put romesco on a menu, nobody knew what it was. Took, took explaining. So everything everything was in education. Mm. And then say you have a, a now a California restaurant today. Uh, are you specializing in Asian? Are you doing fusion? Uh, are you doing, today I was reading online from one of the websites, Bolognese sauce with Asian seasoning. I thought, just what we don't fucking need. And that's there, you know. Um, But is is that the kind of restaurant that you're running? Are you running a restaurant where every dish comes out of a different cook with a different background? Like Speedo, that, you know, Jeremiah's second restaurant that failed. Why? It had no voice. Mm. You didn't know who it was. Mm. I mean, it was a mishmash. Mm -hmm. You can't do that. So there still has to be a governing editor, like writing a book. There's got to be a voice or a signature or somebody who says, well, that's nice, but it's not this restaurant. Okay, that's that's. One way to put it. So did you did you hear a lot about the different voices from the research on California Food Revolution and learn other kind of surprising things or everything was well, every, every, not Most super of the chefs that I interviewed mm-hmm. um, had a point of view. Hmm. Um, of course, like was, chefs do, right? <laughs> no, okay. When I was interviewing Wolfgang Puck, which was very interesting... He was very Mm broad-minded. He was interested in finding out more about the California ingredients. He sent Mark Peel up here to work at Chez Panisse for a while Mm -hmm. so that he had a sense of how things were going in Northern California. He allowed input from some of his cooks, but he was the final editor. And just like he had one voice at Chinois on Maine, 
that food never crossed over into Spago. Mm. I mean, they had their, their territory and their signature flavor. If Evan Kleiman was running Angeli, it was Italian which she calls grandma food, but that's <laughs> what it was. If you were doing a classic French restaurant like Roland Passo, mm-hmm. you didn't have any Thai stir-fries mm. coming on the menu. So most of the cooks in those days had a position, a point of view, right. a sphere of interest to them. And um, most of it started out pretty straight. By the 90s, we got into the fusion, confusion, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 22 things on a plate. What do you think of fusion now? I think it's dangerous. I think um, I've eaten some things that I wish I hadn't eaten because (laughs) the flavors didn't come together. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that unless the chef has experience with multiple cuisines, it's pretty tricky putting them together Mm. on a plate. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's successful. And sometimes it's not. But if it comes under the heading of California food, see, California allows Asian influences or Latino influences on your food. But I really don't want to eat a bolognese with Asian flavors, okay? Mm. That, to me, is never one step too Too far. far. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so because I think fusion is very interesting now. You know, as the world gets smaller, don't you think in some ways everything's a little bit fused? You know, and I was having this conversation with, with, with some other folks. You know, we have a Spanish restaurant, but just for the fact that it's in California, we get a lot of our, our produce and meats and everything from California. So in that way, it's going to taste a little bit different well, than, it would, in, than, it, would different in, than it would in Spain. But would you would you? But call, you're not you you're not doing a, Chinese Spanish food mm, no. or Moroccan Spanish mm, food, even no. though Gibraltar and the Straits right. are pretty close. Right. Um, you're doing Spanish food with California ingredients. Mm. So you wouldn't call that fusion. That to person. me is not fusion at all. Got it. Got it. You still have. A vocabulary from mm-hmm. Spain. You have traditional dishes made with our ingredients. Mm-hmm. Yes, I grant you that not all the ingredients taste the same, mm-hmm. but that's different than doing, you know, a Thai bolognese or an Asian pot of food. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's one thing if you're if you're an Asian hot pot restaurant. That's technically mm-hmm. a pot of food, mm-hmm. and and you're having that. Um, but I just. I see a lot of things put together that I wish they hadn't done. Hadn't happened. Yeah, that's all. So I'm square, okay? I'm, <laughs> square I'm, I'm more of a traditionalist. I am the square and square one. That's, that's right. So I, I asked you about uh, the un, unsung heroes of the California food revolution, and, and, and you immediately jumped onto the farmers. So, so tell me about your opinion about that. Well, you know, when California cuisine happened, the press would call restaurant kitchens, and they'd talk to the chefs, and... And the chefs, you know, were we had open kitchens, so they were not hidden behind the doors anymore. So they got a lot of press, a lot of coverage. And the thing is, we couldn't have done it without our farmers. When Andy Griffin would send for an Italian seed catalog and ask you, what, what do you want me to grow? Mm. He didn't know if he's planting this crop and I was the only one that was going to buy it or everybody would buy it. Um... You know, green leaf, I would bring back seeds for my travels, and I'd say, can you find a farm to grow this for mm. me? Um, but these farmers took a chance, because mm. what, if, what if nobody bought this stuff and they relied on my request for an unusual long pepper from Turkey? Mm-hmm. And Joyce, you're the only one that wants it. I can't afford to grow it. But they, they put in the work. Mm-hmm. They did the research. They they tried seeds from all over. They tried to satisfy a number of restaurants that they were covering. Mm. I mean, if Andy at, at Marikita was making ingredients for Asian restaurants, for Latin restaurants, for California restaurants, mm. Italian restaurants, he wanted to have the stuff growing for them. Mm. And um, and he took a chance, and, and of course it worked. Mm. So... Switching subjects just a little bit or, 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 or moving around a little bit. So you really recognize a lot with Italy. and It's my soul. So tell, tell me about why Italy is your soul. Well, the first time I went was in 1957. And it was just, I had studied French in high school and college and went to France. And it was not my culture. 
Mm. It just, it was not my culture. And I got a little pocket dictionary of Italian, and I got on a train, and I went to Italy, and my life changed. Um, People started to talk to me. Uh, They shared food, Uh, even on a train, perfect strangers. I wasn't fluent in the language, but if I took out my dictionary and looked up words, people were helpful. Visually, it was my place, the style of the china, the the Mialica pottery, Mm -hmm. the artworks, the painters, the color of the cities, the stone. I just was home, okay? Mm. Mm. That didn't happen to me in France with the little, little Provencal flowers mm-hmm. and the kind. Mm-hmm. Just not my, you know, it's not one is right and one is wrong. Sure. It's just. Cup of tea. When I got to Italy, I was home. Mm. And so after this brief visit in 57, I went back to Yale. I was in graduate school mm-hmm. and painting at that time. Mm. And I said, I have to have permission to take Italian because I'm going back. Mm. And they were always worried that a painter would take an academic course because a lot of the painters were not literate. (laughs) They were very talented, but they were not book people. Mm. And I said, you know, I'm Phi Beta Kappa from Smith. You can let me take Italian. I won't fall behind in my work. And so I took Italian in the morning, 8 o'clock class, um, for about six months. And at that time I was married, and my husband was studying Japanese because he applied for a Fulbright to Japan Mm. in architecture. And I'm studying Italian. Mm. Right there we should have known, but Mm -hmm. we didn't know at the time. (laughs) (laughs) And um, he heard back from the Fulbright people and they said they didn't have any more architecture Fulbrights to Japan, but they could send us to Italy. Ha ha! So Serendipitous. I was in heaven. I was in heaven. And uh, so we spent six to eight weeks in Perugia. He was at mm-hmm. school at the Università Pestranieri. I was in a house with these Italian Jews, two sisters in their 80s, and mm. then the, the, their brother who was in his 60s. And I hung out with them. I went to the market with them. I wanted to see what they were cooking. They were not very good cooks. And also the Fulbright people gave them very little money, you know, so... Meals were scrimping and saving. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nonetheless, mm-hmm. Perugia was a beautiful hill town. And were you, what was your culinary mindset at that moment in time? Were you, I, you were I cooking was, at home a little bit? You know, uh, were, I cooked doing? at home mm-hmm. uh, when I was married and in graduate school. Mm-hmm. And there I was teaching myself from The Joy of Cooking and The New York Times and Elizabeth David. Those mm-hmm. were my three books. Mm-hmm. And I'm self-taught, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I'd make it and see if it was good. So this was your your cooking school, more or less, So right? going to Italy, yeah. and then when we rented our apartment in Rome, we were across the street from a covered market that was maybe three blocks square, mm. and you walked in and all the vegetable and fish stalls. And, and was that new to you? Or, there were ingredients there I'd never seen, yeah. so I'd have to say, what do you do with this? What do you do right. with this? You know, and... Uh, if we ate out, the next day I would go home and make what we ate so that I had a taste memory to match. Uh-huh. And um, it was, it changed my life. It changed my life. Yeah. And, and living in Italy is still part of my pattern of my life today. Uh, every morning I get up and I make myself a double cappuccino. Mm-hmm about six in the morning. I have another one at 10. Then I have a double espresso between three and four. (laughs) I have an aperitivo at five. And then I have wine with my dinner. I like the rhythm of the day. Um, It fits my lifestyle. Uh I didn't realize I had formed a life pattern by living Mm. there. But I have. Mm. Um, and I don't like my routine to be broken because I'm an Italian. <laughs> so, so so you said that you 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 learned a lot about yourself as a person. What did you learn about yourself? Well, all right. Being a New Yorker. Mm-hmm. Compulsive, mm-hmm. speedy, mm-hmm. in a rush, mm-hmm. multitasking. <laughs> when you get to Italy, you're in Rome. You bring a shirt into the cleaners, and they say, Wednesday, signora. And you come in Wednesday, they haven't started. They want to see if you were serious. Okay, that's Italian. Um, 
You watch them sweeping the street with brooms that are doomed to fall apart. Mm-hmm. It keeps people employed. Mm. You go to the post office to mail a letter. You go to one booth and you buy a stamp. And then you put the stamp on a leather and you go to another booth and they write something in a book and then you go somewhere else. So going to the post office is the morning. <laughs> it's not like you can go to the post office and then the cleaners and then the market like I did today. Today right. I ran like 15 errands. Right. In that Italy, was a week's worth of errands no, in Italy. In Italy, the post office is the morning, mm. okay? Mm. You just are not going to get in and out of there, bang, bang, bang. Mm-hmm. So it taught me. They used to say to me all the time, pazienza, signora, pazienza, be patient. Because as a New Yorker, right. as a multitasker, the Italians can drive you nuts, <laughs> nuts. And I realized I couldn't fight it. I had mm. to join it. I, mm. had to, I had to slow it down. Mm. And the that's, other, a good, you know, that's a good lesson. Oh, they it's say, a they very, say it's a very stress good is one of the number one things that'll get you. Yeah. So. The, the other thing I want to say he says it's an expression in French, joie de vivre. Mm-hmm. I don't find that the French, joie de vivre. I don't think they enjoy life. They, they're always complaining and whining. The Italians have joie de vivre. They enjoy life. Their government is a complete disaster. Mm. Unemployment is bad. The traffic is bad. Mm. These people enjoy their life. Mm. You watch them at the table. You watch them with their families. They know how to compartmentalize the chaos around them, and believe me, there is chaos, into the important things, like sitting down and having a coffee with a friend. Mm. That's okay. There's no rush for that. Um, they, they enjoy sitting in a piazza. I mean, you watch families. I, I love to sit in the piazza in a moment and watch the kids run around and the parents and... And people are enjoying their life. Now, I don't know what their employment is like. A lot of people are unemployed. Their Mm. salaries and pensions are screwed up. Mm. I mean, the government is a mess. Mm. But when it's not that, they enjoy life. Mm. And I think that's a very important lesson. For me. And, and food-wise, you were coming from New York. You know, I asked you who cooked growing up, and you said bad cooks. But we ate out, right. okay? So as a child, both my parents worked, and so we ate out two or three times a week. Mm. We ate in our Brooklyn Chinese restaurants. Uh, we'd eat at Luchow's. My father would take me on a date to a French restaurant in New York. We'd mm. go out and have dinner. Um, I realized it was good food. Just not at home, but but there was good. But, food. So I think it's 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 important that you recognize that the the cooks were bad because I think so many times you hear uh, cooks and chefs in the community you know painting a picture of of growing up you know with the best and 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 best techniques and best ingredients and best produce. Doesn't my, always, it doesn't. My always... kids will be able to tell <laughs> exactly, you that exactly. But I can't tell you that. I had one neighbor, Mrs. Weinstein who was a balabusta, who did all the cooking mm-hmm. for her family and extended family. And she did really good Jewish food. I mean, she, she made good food. and But none of her sisters cooked, so she was it. Every once in a while, I'd go over there to eat something, and I'd say, yeah, that, that was good. Mm-hmm. She, mm-hmm. Helen Weinstein, she was a really good cook. But in my family... Mm. You know, lamb but was great. But look how it turned out. You devoted your, your life to food and cooking, yeah. even though, you know, you didn't have those particular uh, memories from, no, from, from, from your home it. cooking. But I think that that's great. I, I, I think that that shows you that, that, you know, it doesn't really matter sometimes what happens at home. I had a palate. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first time I was in France, my former husband's father was business partners with a French corset company and so we were in Lyon visiting this family and they invited us for lunch and we sat outside and they had rare leg of lamb studded with garlic Mm. and I said to myself this is leg of lamb Mm. not that gray stuff that I was having at home Mm -hmm. this is like it was like a revelation Mm. now I can understand why you could like leg of lamb Mm. so you know with anything like this um, eating in, in Florence the first time, having fettuccine with prosciutto and peas and mm. butter. Now, it sounds like a moronically simple dish. 
The noodles were like silk. Mm -hmm. The butter was impeccable. The peas were fresh and sweet. Prosciutto was perfect. It was perfectly cooked. It had three ingredients. Mm -hmm. But they they were all stellar. It was perfection. There's nowhere to hide in three ingredients. So you stop for a minute and you say, pay attention to this. You see, you don't need 40 things on a plate Mm -hmm. to make something taste good. Mm -hmm. No, every time you have something that changes your life, you eat something and it changes your life. Mm. And... It's important to take note of that. Mm-hmm. When we were in Spain for a summer and it was hotter than hell, and so every day we had gazpacho. This is, in the, this is in the south, in, in, in Andalusia. Yeah. yeah. And, and this was in 1960. Mm. And so we'd have it for lunch, we'd have it for dinner, mm-hmm. we had a car. And I had to try it everywhere to see which one was the one I was going to make. When I do, you rem- do you remember the one that, that it was, was in Murcia? I know uh-huh. where it was. It was in the town of Murcia, uh-huh. uh-huh. and because why it that had, one? It had some acidity. Uh-huh. I don't know whether they used a little sherry vinegar, mm-hmm. um, but it had acidity, and the others were a little blander, mm-hmm. and maybe it had less bread thickening. Mm-hmm. But whenever I make it, I taste it. Mm-hmm. I'm aiming for that balance. Mm-hmm of the richness, you know, the vegetables, the olive oil, but it's got to have the vinegar. Mm. It's just a little mm. bit. It's not mm-hmm. a lot, but it makes a big difference. And sometimes our big tomatoes don't have a lot of acidity. They're pretty. So then, you know, there's a hole in the soup. You're eating it, and it's like, what's missing? What's mm-hmm. missing? Mm-hmm. You put in a little bit of vinegar, and it's like, aha, we have it. Mm. So every time you eat a, a signature dish, a dish that just stops you in your tracks, mm-hmm. You have to make a note to yourself, why am I loving this? Right. Well, how is this different from the other? I did this with spaghetti carbonara living in Rome. I had mm. it. I gained 25 pounds. <laughs> but I in the name it, of research. In the name of research. Yeah. I had to have it everywhere to see where was the best one. Pure Luigi had the best one. <laughs> um, but, you know, I had to taste it everywhere to see what were the, what were the variations. Mm. In the Amaturchana, you know, what was the variation? Mm-hmm. Uh, every time you order something, you have something you're measuring it against. And then you say, that's the one I want to remember. Mm. Mm. And so when you make it, you, you go to the old memory mm-hmm. bank and you say, that's, it's close, it's close, it's close. All right, I got it. Mm. You know, then you stop. Mm. So how many how many cookbooks now? I have written 29 books. 29 books. 28 Oof. are cookbooks and then, and, and then, and then the, the Inside right. the California Food so, Revolution. So, so much is focused around the Mediterranean. Why? why you know, why? Because when I was there in every country in the Mediterranean. It's not just Italy. No, no. I love the food in Greece. I mm. love the food in Spain. I mm-hmm. love the food in Turkey. Mm-hmm. I loved the food in Morocco. I liked, you know, Portuguese, some Portuguese mm-hmm. dishes. Um, but I thought this is the way I want to eat for the rest of my life. Mm. It, it was a vegetable focus, mm-hmm. not huge hunks of protein, um, everything fresh, everything seasonal. Mm. Uh, you know, you'd see open markets every, everywhere you went. There was a market. And you'd see housewives shopping. And they would go home and cook. And the restaurants shopped every day. Mm-hmm. It wasn't big refrigerator trucks mm, right. and stuff coming in on airplanes. Um, it seemed very important to eat that way. Yeah. I, so I studied in college in Rome for about seven months. I was very lucky to have that opportunity. You were lucky. And I noticed, you know, we were in a tiny, tiny, tiny apartment with the toilet was in the shower. It was that small. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the first thing I noticed was the fridge. It was like a mini fridge. Oh, yeah. And that's where I learned that, that you do your shopping for a day or two. You don't do your shopping oh, every day. for, you know, there, there was no, wait, at, wait. at that time, no Costco. Yeah. You know, no, no big, the, they, there was one grocery store and you would go there to buy like your aluminum foil and like right. those kinds paper of napkins yeah. salt yeah but you otherwise know, you went to the pasta lady you went no, to you the, went the vegetable to, cart you went you to went 10 to, different yeah. markets oh, yeah. in a day yeah uh, we had an ice box so we didn't even have a refrigerator we had a kid who delivered a piece of ice every mm. day and um and i would go to the vegetable and fruit market and fish the dairy then there was a market for pork there was a market for veal mm. and a market for um lamb 
you know, but each each guy had a specialty, and you could tell what was hanging outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, there was the Eggman. There was the Salumeria, mm-hmm. cold cuts and cheese. I mean, each day, and the bakery. So each day you marketed, you went out, and again, it was not like a drive to the supermarket, fill up your cart, get right. the hell out, and go home. Right. It was the morning. You stopped, <laughs> and you stopped, and you had a cappuccino, and right. you talked to the ladies, and what were they making. Right. And, and maybe they were out of something, and uh, that's just how it was, and you yeah, got something else. You got something else. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's like when, when you'd go to the beef guy, you'd know that if you, the animal just came in, that's when you got the liver and the kidneys, anything that could spoil fast. Mm-hmm. And the steaks were like the end of the week. Mm. So they did it, you know, by age ageability. Mm. I mean, it's just it makes sense. common sense. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we don't shop like that. Mm-mm. So that's Mm-mm. part of learning. Yeah, know? it was a big eye-opener coming from Texas where, where we really shopped at grocery stores mm-hmm. growing up. And then and then I, I'm doing shopping. You know, I'm going to the pasta lady. And, yeah. and she's telling me, you know, you know, in my broken Italian. And, and, and she's, she's, you know, telling me what's good. What they made that mm-hmm. day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. No. So, so, so your latest book is on preserving. Yes. And it's called um, Jam, Jam Session. Jam Session. So, oh, which I, I great name. Uh, so preserving and, and, and jams are, are really fascinating because every culture had it because every culture there was a time when, you know, there wasn't electricity. And so they have histories of the harvest comes in right. and you preserve it. Right. So so talk about that this book a little bit. Well, I'm still doing it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's my passion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been doing it since 1966 mm-hmm. or 67. And um, I make... You know, normal jams, mm-hmm. but I make condiments because every time I travel, like when I was in Istanbul and I was on the Asian side at this restaurant, they brought over this condiment to eat with these lamb sausage, mm-hmm. and he called it esme, which really means sauce, but mm-hmm. I, I, that's what I call it, esme in my book. Mm-hmm. And it had pomegranate and like a poblano pepper because mm-hmm. our, our poblanos are closer to the Turkish right, pepper. Right, right, right. And so my goal in life was to learn how to make that. Um, I make, well, the whole condiment section in my book. After we finish this interview, I'll take you down to the preserve cellar, mm. and you can take some oh, stuff I home. Love, oh, I love, and I just even love to see it and take pictures. Yeah, but um, mm. it, every time, like I'm waiting right now because the apricots will be the first, the first preserve. You start the year with apricots mm. and then cherries. And... Um, and then maybe berries, depending on when they, the little ones. I don't want the big ones. I want the little ones because mm. I preserve them whole. But I've already checked in with Farmer Al to find out when the Apaches are coming. The blossoms are not set yet. Mm. Last year he lost his whole crop of mm. Apache apricots, which tore my mm. heart out because mm. they make the best jam. But then I make an apricot ginger condiment and I make an apricot chutney mm. because I don't eat a lot of sweets. Mm-hmm. But if I make a piece of chicken or a lamb chop, mm-hmm. I have a condiment with it. And so I've got, you know, Asian plum sauce. I have the Russian tikmali plum sauce that I make. Um, I make a mustarda with plums. I make mustarda with cherries. I also make cherry jam and cherries that you can put on ice cream. Um but, and then I, every year I, I taste the fruit. The fruit's different every year. Mm-hmm. So you pay attention. Mm-hmm. You see whether it's cooking fast or slow. I mean, it's alive is the way I look at it. Mm. One year we had a weird summer and all the fruit cooked up so fast mm. that it was almost gone. You started to lose all the contours of the fruit. Mm. And so you'd have to put in a next, a second batch, like a double apricot. Mm ginger thing because the first ones had gotten too soft too fast and so you have to pay attention but I love making it I love giving it to people um I loved writing that book because it mentions all of our farmers at the farmer's Mm. market Mm -hmm. and you know I I want them to know that their their produce is in my recipes Mm -hmm. I couldn't do it with I could but it would never taste the same so um, I'm looking forward to starting the preserving season again. I didn't make a lot of marmalade this year because I still had some in marmalade keeps for four or five years. Mm-hmm. But I'm waiting for apricots and cherries, and then I'll go on through the summer, you mm. know. Yeah, it's, it's you know, 
when you go to a farmer's market and you and you get a case of something yeah. you don't know why but you just do and because it's fantastic yeah. uh, but you don't know what you're going to do with it per se but you know at the end of the day you know at least you know at, at the restaurant uh, if we don't use it all for what we were intended we can always turn it into a preserve yeah exactly and, and then we and then you know you have something in your arsenal that you pull back out later it distinguishes um, yeah. your cooking. Yeah. Especially, like, I live alone now. I'm a single person. Mm. I'm not making big braises for mm-hmm. myself or big mm-hmm. rolls. So if I buy a piece of salmon, well, it's absolutely delicious with one of the the, the plum sauce mm-hmm. with, the, with the cilantro and stuff, and it is really good. Mm. Uh, if I buy a chicken breast or a baby lamb chop, I have my Moroccan, I make Moroccan lamb burgers, mm. and so I have my Moroccan cherry tomato conserve, and I put it in a pit of bread with the Moroccan cherry tomato stuff, and I have my lamb burger, and I'm in heaven. And so it takes something that might be very plain, like chicken or fish, and you do something with it. So are you, because I know you, do, you, you spend your life doing a lot of research, are you learning new things for this book, or it's more just like this is well, you're 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 putting it all down because you've already learned it, you know? It's two things. I always want to learn something mm-hmm. new. I mean, otherwise, die. You know, what's the <laughs> point? Um, but like, if I get in apricots, I mm-hmm. might go through my library and see. What do the Persians do with it? What is so-and-so doing with it? Mm. Are there any other cultures that mm-hmm. are doing something that are different from mine? Mm-hmm. Or am I going to make something up mm. as I sit here and see what I have in my, in my larder? Mm-hmm. Um, I love doing preser- research on food. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that infuriates me is when I read a column in the Chronicle where a writer talks about the trick in Circassian chicken that Claudia Roden used of putting nuts in the sauce, when in fact Arabic cooks from the 700s mm. did nut sauces. Mm. That's why we have romesco, that's why we have piccata, that's why we have all these different dishes that are thick in mahamra. Mm. It's part of their culture, it was one of their thickeners. And so it's not a trick, man. It's part of a color. You see this? Right. I get upset when I read this stuff. Right. Because it tells me, you didn't do your homework, buddy. Uh, I, there are no tricks, you know? I mean, there may be technical tricks where now a lot of restaurants that serve kebabs cook them sous vide and then char them later to keep them moist. That's a trick mm-hmm. that you won't find in the Mediterranean. People are grilling over charcoal, mm-hmm. boots on a stick, they're grilling it. They're not sous vide at first. But if you get one that's very moist and delicious and they've done it sous vide, I think, cool, mm-hmm. that's fine. Mm-hmm. Use, use your technique to make it maintain its moisture. I'm, I'm, impo- I'm impressed with new techniques to make food taste better or maintain texture, but I always want to look for the roots of stuff. Mm-hmm. What do different cultures do with it? And mostly my research is in the Mediterranean because right. that's my palate. So you see this library here? Yeah. Well, that's a lot of the Mediterranean. So mm. I, I might just decide one day, well, what did the Greeks do with apricots during apricot season? And see if they have anything different than I did. Mm. Or the Turks. I mean, the Turks did a lot with apricots because most of the apricots are grown in Turkey. So, but that's nice to know. And, um, and then I look at the spices that they use, and I think, oh, all right, quince. Quince comes in all at once. You've got to use them. All right, so what do the Persians do? Rose cardamom all right what do americans do different different things different cultures um so that interests me mm-hmm. and i will spend mm-hmm. some time with the books before i start cooking do you do you because you do you have an enormous library which yeah. is just it's you know and it, it's 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 really amazing to see i have about three thousand books wow yeah do you find yourself more and more looking online for research or you still really mainly rely on your books? I rely on books when I trust the authors. Mm. Um, there's a lot of stuff that you can find though online. Mm-hmm. Um, like if you want to do a quick history of oranges, you can go on Wikipedia and they'll tell you that the sour oranges were brought in by one 
group of people mm -hmm. and that the Portuguese brought in the sweet oranges, which is why they're called Portocal. I mean, so you realize oranges had two lives. They had two different importers. Mm -hmm. They came in to Europe at different times. Uh, so, the, But some of this will be on Wikipedia, and it's valuable, because then it might send you in a direction to a book that you have from another country that you... Like eggplant. Did you know that the eggplant came from India? Mm, I didn't mm -mm. know that. Mm -mm. And, and so when you start looking at what countries are using the eggplant and how it got there, a lot of stuff got to where it is via the Ottoman Empire. Those guys carried... They brought the peppers to Spain and... They then transported it all over. So hot peppers got to China. They got to India. I mean, they came mm. from Bolivia. Mm. But the Turks, see, I'm always interested. How did, how mm -hmm. did it get there? How, how did, did it get, get there? there? Right. And, and um, so I'm always interested in the origins of where something came from mm. and, um, and how we have adapted it. I mean, it's just, it's still a wonder to me. The whole Colombian exchange of the tomatoes and peppers and potatoes and corn going over to Europe changed their lives, changed their food. Mm. And then we sent stuff to them. I mean, mole is one of those Arabic nut sauces that the Spanish were making that ended up in Mexico. Mm. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it, it blows it's like, it's my like mind. It's like cross-pollinating cross bees. And that's not fusion, yeah. you see? That is sort of done yeah. over time. Mm. It's a slow... Migration. A culture, <laughs> it's a migration, and it's acculturation. It's absorbed into the culture gradually. I mm. guess that's my problem with fusion. Mm. I think it's one thing when something fits into a culture and then over time the ingredients are absorbed in and become part of the country where they've landed. And another thing for a chef to say, oh, I think I'll put uh, Chinese stir-fried vegetables with my Moroccan tagine and this and some reda from India mm. and make a dish. You can do that, but it doesn't work for me. Mm. Mm. It may taste great, rarely does but let's say the person's really talented but i like when something comes in from another culture look the tomato they didn't cook with tomatoes in italy for 200 years they had tomatoes they didn't cook them mm. and and they looked at them they were ornamental plants mm. they were afraid they might be poisonous i mean it's all sorts of stuff look at the pepper how the pepper is different in Spain, the Romesco pepper. How's the pepper different in Latin America? How's it different in China? How's it different in India? They're all from the same pepper plant, but each culture grew it to their palate. The Hungarian pepper is the same as some of the other peppers, but they didn't want it as hot. They bred it till they had fewer seeds. I mean, you make food work mm -hmm. for your culture. Hmm. So, so, who, so who invented tweezers? Uh, I want to say Thomas Keller, but I can't. I don't know if I can blame it on him. The boys, the boys are tweezer cooks. Well, why do you think that became such a such a thing, or is such a thing? Oh well, no, because we have to blame it on food photography. All of this, you know, leaf, a twig, a dot of this, of that. That's because of food styling. Mm. And, and so then chefs said, oh, well, Instagram, and we're going to photograph our food. So it's got to look magazine ready or book ready. Mm. And a lot of that stuff is done with tweezers. Food stylists use paintbrushes. They use, you know, all sorts of tricks to make the picture look great. Mm. And so in a lot of restaurants now, they're doing foods as paintings, as Instagram shots. Mm. Mm. Does it taste better? I don't think so. <laughs> so. I'll tell you something funny. When Anthony opened Prairie, he sent me an email. He said, Joycey, you can come in. No tweezers, no foam, no dots. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's. He knows me. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's, it's nice to have a straight shooter. Yeah. So. You know, you. I, I asked you a few things that 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 you know kind of make you make you mad here, and you, one of the things that you said was overly confessional food writing. Yes. So, so tell me about tell me about that. All right. When I read a recipe in the Chronicle, I don't need to know that the guy is gay or that he came out to his mother. What does that have to do with his food? I don't give a shit. Okay. <laughs> I don't care, unless. It changed his entire way of cooking coming mm. out, which is not the case when I read it. I just don't need to know that. I don't need to know about people's 
personal life, unless it's a memoir. Mm. If it's a memoir, mm -hmm. I do want to know. Mm -hmm. But if I'm reading a recipe for a cook something or other, I don't need to know the rest of this stuff. It's, it doesn't, it's not relevant. Um, there's just sometimes too much information. Mm. I don't want it. Mm. Can you write a good recipe? Can someone follow it? Is it clear? You know, it's, it's just all this other... Well, you've spent the bulk of your career writing recipes. So when you see recipes that... You don't know anything about my sex oh, life from oh. reading my recipes. <laughs> you don't know anything about my love affairs, my life, my, uh, you know, all sorts of stuff you don't know. You'll know if I ate something in a restaurant in Murcia that it was a delicious gazpacho. Right. You'll know that if I got an idea from Paula Wolfert, I give her credit. Right. You'll know if I learned something on a trip with old ways where we ended up in a place and I saw them cooking all these bastillas on brazers in a room, this wealthy guy, just a room full of brazers. Yeah, I'll write about that because that has to do with the food. Mm. But, but you don't need to know about my life mm. unless I decide to write a memoir, and then, yes, you'll be entitled to some of it, not all of it, but some of it. <laughs> I was here for the 60s and 70s, so, you know. <laughs> so it was there. So, so I was asking a little bit about, about community, and you were talking about an organization, an organization called Support for Families. So, so tell me about Support for Families. Well, um, 14 years ago, my daughter gave birth to what seemed to be a healthy baby boy, and he was a little slow, to, he wasn't rolling over, he wasn't sitting up. Uh, and there's a syndrome called the limp baby syndrome or something like this. But the pediatrician didn't pick up on it. And um, one night he had an ear infection and she took him to the hospital. And after examining him, the doctor said, you need to get this kid to a neurologist. Mm. There's a developmental problem. So we went up to UC and the doctor said, your baby is going to be retarded. Um, I mean, he said it with that much tact. Right. And you're going to need help for the rest of your life. And, of course, she lost it. Mm -hmm. We all lost it. Mm -hmm. But they didn't know what it was. Mm. And um, then she went down to Stanford for tests. And they discovered, after four years of testing, genetic testing, that he had something called Pitt-Hopkins syndrome, which is a mutation on one of the chromosomes. There are only about five or 600 cases that they've mm. identified so far. It's close to another syndrome. I don't know all of them. But it means a lot of these kids have seizures. They don't walk. They don't talk. Fortunately, Antonio was on the high end of the spectrum, so he does walk, he plays sports, he talks, but his speech is all garbled up because he's missing the corpus callosum, the piece of the brain that does right brain, left brain mm. connect. So he makes sounds. Mm -hmm. We're used to it. He goes to speech therapy. Anyway, we know what he has. But when Rachel found this out, she didn't know where to turn, and she found out about support for families. They told her how to get aid, how to get government support, how to navigate the school system to make sure that your kid was entitled to mainstreaming and getting an aid, what doctors, what speech therapists, all sorts of help. Mm. And she's worked with them as a volunteer for years. And this year, they made her director of development. Mm. Um, because she's put in so much time mm -hmm. and she cares so passionately about this organization. Mm -hmm. And they work with kids that are autistic, I mean, you know, who, who, that are increasing by the day, but all these other weird genetic things that are happening mm -hmm. to babies. They don't know if it's environmental, they don't know what causes a lot of this stuff. But um, if you were a parent, especially, say, one that didn't speak English, and you were confronted with this, where would you go for help mm. to navigate the government paperwork, getting all your rights, making sure that your kid's teaching plan, the IEP at school was done right, finding the right neurologist. I mean, that's what they do. So they have saved 
people a lot of stress because it's stressful to have a disabled or developmentally delayed child. Of course, of course. And this helps share the burden and it gives you advice and support. And they have support groups of mothers that come together. I mean, all sorts of stuff. So um, I'm very active in helping raise money. Mm. When I had my 80th birthday, we did it at Perbaco, and a percentage of the sales went to support for families. Mm, we gave them a great. big chunk of change, yeah. Mm. And so any opportunity to help. Mm. So it leads us to kind of a, a current state of affairs. Uh, you know, what's going on right now in, 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 in the world, in the United States? I mean, you know, where are we headed? How, how long is it going to take till we blow ourselves up? What do you think? If we don't get that man out of the White House, I don't know. I, I'm serious. I, I agree. I, I, I don't I agree. know. I don't I know agree. how much longer I can take it. Mm. Um, I I remember back in the days of Obama, where I'd read my paper in the morning and then watch one newscast and forget about it. Now I'm an addict. Mm. I read my newspapers. I get website blogs on politics. I watch the news good part of the evening. I feel like we have to be aware of what's happening around us because damage is being done Mm -hmm. and I don't know how long it's going to take to correct it. Every day I pray he eats a Big Mac too many and has a stroke. (laughs) Um, You know, know, the poverty, the cutting of the food stamps, Mm. the cutting of the health care. the the not mentioning climate change. Mm-hmm. I mean, what world is this moron in? Mm. And it, of course, affects everyone. It affects the food supply. Mm-hmm. It affects people who don't have enough to eat. Um, it, it affects well, the lack of education. You look at the people that support him who don't read. He doesn't read. How do they learn mm. other than fake news i mean they get fake news no i i'm 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 in despair okay mm. and as a person in my 80s i want to live long enough to see him gone mm-hmm. and to see us be able to regroup and correct what's happening and it's going to take a while mm. it's, it's not going to be fixed right away you know, i feel like we've taken so many steps back oh, you know oh. Mm. Anyway, it's it's made me a crazy person. Okay, <laughs> I, that's I have to say that. Okay, so so now if you will play uh, a little game with me, is that okay? A game? A little game? I don't know. Let's see game. if I can play a game. See, you can. It's 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 easy game. It's called Three Things. Uh, you just say the first three things that come to your mind, and uh, it can be fictional, it can be real, it, it doesn't matter. You mean just any three things that come to my mind? Correct. I'm going to ask you questions. So the first one is name three fears that you have. Uh, fears of dying too soon. I want to see what happens to my grandkids. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not fear of dying physically. It's fear of leaving the scene too soon. Mm-hmm. I, ha- I have a contract with my family, and I, <laughs> and I have to be around long enough. And... Um, so that's one fear. Uh, fear of falling. I had a very bad fall last year, mm. and I fell down my steps at 5 in the morning and broke my collarbone mm. and some ribs and stuff. So now I have a, a, an alert thing mm-hmm. so that my family doesn't worry about me. So fear of falling. Mm-hmm. Do I have another fear? Those are two good ones. Mm-hmm. Um, no, those, those, those are the things that... I don't have a third one. Politics. Oh, oh politics. <laughs> Afraid that Donald Trump will be reelected. That's my third fear, okay? Yeah. I'm trying not to lead the witness. But, okay, but, no, yeah, all that, right. That that's seems, my third that, fear. That, 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 that seems correct. All right. Um, yeah, so. death and Donald Trump. How is that? Uh, okay, how about three life lessons that you learned from the kitchen? Don't be in a rush. Take your time. Have all your ingredients ready. Do a mise en place because it saves you trouble. Taste your food all the way through the cooking process, mm. not just at the end. Because if you taste it in the middle and there's a hole in it, you can fix it and not have to wait till the end and decide that you've wasted all your energy on a dish that wasn't worth it. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and you can't do it all. You can't learn it all. You can't master it all. We have limits as human beings. Mm -hmm. And just do what you can do, and it will be fine. Well, you know, you know, one thing that I think I've learned as I get older, and I agree with everything you're saying. Uh, you you always have that rush of you know to get ready for when the doors open. Oh yeah. And you always have that fear that you're not going to be able to get it all done. Yeah. But then at some point you realize it really all gets done. Oh, it does get done. You know? Well, it's different in the restaurant. I mean, yeah. the restaurant it's showtime. The yeah. doors open at five thirty. Yeah. You're ready. At home though. Sometimes I have this tendency to speed. Mm -hmm. I'm a speed. I'm, I'm a New Yorker. Mm -hmm. I'm a speed freak. Um, and then I think back to the pazienza, signora. Slow <laughs> it down. Enjoy it. Take your time. I mean, when I first was teaching myself how to cook, I was more in tune to the process of cooking mm -hmm. and slowing down. Now that I've been doing it for 60, 70 years, it's a different thing. Um, I have my ways of doing things, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I, but see, preserving is a meditation. So that's part of the slowing down. You've got to sit down and pit a case of cherries, man. Mm -hmm. You're not in any rush. Mm -hmm. It's going to take you some time to do it. Get comfy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and you might eat one mm -hmm. and, but you've got to do the work. You're pitting a case of apricots. Well, you still got to sit down and do it. Mm -hmm. You can't blitz your way through it. Right. And and just the fact that it's not ready right away. No, and that you and have that and you're going to sugar it and let it sit mm -hmm. overnight with mm -hmm. the lemon juice, and then the next day, and then you might stop it in the middle because you want the flavors to come up a little bit more. So it's really paying attention, mm -hmm. paying attention. Speed is less important. I mean, when you read these cookbooks, dinner in 20 minutes. Right. Dinner, like, right. Some things don't happen in 20 minutes. Thing, and, yeah. and, and there are some nights when you need it to happen in 20 minutes, mm -hmm. and there are some nights where you could just slow down mm -hmm. and enjoy it. There's also some nights where you buy something and you didn't make it and God will not strike you dead. <laughs> well, d d as we talked about at the beginning, that's how you, that's what taught you about food was going out to eat. Going out to eat, so, but no, I love going out. Yeah. But I but, like- But eating other people's food. You know, going yeah. out. Well, I, I learn, you know, things. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't have a huge budget. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm a retired person. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't have a huge income. Mm -hmm. So I, I go out once a week. That's fine, um, but it's all right. But I'm, I'm saying, what if I ordered in? What if I bought uh, some package of ravioli from the pasta shop? Will God strike me dead that mm -hmm. I didn't make the ravioli? Mm -hmm. No, you can have a <laughs> night where you use, no, I'm serious. Mm -hmm. Well, but you see, for me, that would have been criminal ages mm -hmm. ago. Now I just say, I'm tired today. I have mm -hmm. some ravioli in the freezer. They're good ravioli. It goes back to your rule. You can't do it all. You can't, you can't do it you all. You can't write jam session and cook yourself dinner every single and night. Every single night. So. That's exactly right. So I, I have different expectations for myself now. Mm. I like that one. Yeah. Okay. So three ingredients that always surprise you for good or for bad. Surprise me. Mm -hmm. Tomatoes surprise me because sometimes they're sweet and sometimes they're tart. And sometimes they're beautiful and they don't have any taste. And sometimes they're perfection. You, they're not predictable, mm -hmm. so they do surprise me. Um, what surprises It's me? true. You can't look at you a can't look at tomato it. and tell versus maybe looking at like a banana or looking well, you, at something. You there are no surprises yeah. with a banana. Yeah. A banana is a banana. Right. It's ripe. It's riper. It's riper. Right. But it's, it's not going to taste like something else. Right. But a tomato is right. mutable. No, that's true. Um, I feel that way about, well, I'm trying to think what else would surprise me. Mm -hmm. um, where I stay, well, peppers surprise you because sometimes they're hot mm -hmm. and you that's weren't true. expecting it. And so that's a ho, ho, ho. <laughs> like you buy the padrones, mm -hmm. you eat six of them and they're fine and the seventh one blasts your head off. Mm -hmm. Or you buy a poblano for your tortilla, I make quesadillas for myself. And sometimes they're not hot at all and sometimes, oh my God, mm -hmm. that one was really hot. So those surprise me, and um, and sometimes fruit that looks good that's flat, mm. that that's a sad surprise. Mm -hmm. um, when you buy it and you think it's going to be wonderful, 
like I bought strawberries from three different vendors last week mm -hmm. to see how they were coming along. And the ones from Murena were delicious. Mm. The ones from Dirty Girl were good. The ones from Kenny Baker out front that I usually get, his are usually the sweetest. They looked beautiful. Some were sweet, some were flat. Mm. So they do surprise you because you have looks, you know, you have expectations of size and flavor and perfume, but sometimes they just don't deliver. And, and, and you talked about, you know, food memories before. Strawberries are one of those things that once you have a, a really good one, you're comparing every other uh, strawberry. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. And you're doomed. You're and, doomed. No, no, because you know? you're not going to get it every no, time. you're not. And that's why... I like going to the farmer's market because I can taste at different stalls and see, mm -hmm. yeah, these are, these are better. Or I can say, I'm going to wait two more weeks. I'm not going to put up strawberry jam yet. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes the best strawberries come in August instead mm -hmm. of June. I mean, the first ones come, you're always excited. They come in time for the first Seder. Mm -hmm. That's how I know. Right. But um, they're not the best yet. It's like peas. Yeah. Like English peas. Yeah, yeah they're yeah. not the best yet. So then you have to say, all right, and I, I like to get the little ones because I preserve them whole. And um, so I usually Lucero has beautiful little ones. Kenny had beautiful ones last year, but his were too early. They're not quite, they didn't get enough warmth. So those, those are surprises. They're not bad surprises. They're just, you know, you look at them. Looks are not everything, as they say. <laughs> you know what? A lesson that keeps on yeah, teaching. Yeah. Well, Joyce, it's always a pleasure talking with you. I learn every time so many things <laughs> that I didn't know before. I love your perspective. I love your, 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 your straightforwardness and your years of research that, that always come across whenever we talk. So oh, thank, you. thank you for taking time to do it. I'm happy to this. do it. And now I'm going to take you down into the preserving cellar and send you off with goodies. Awesome. I, I can't wait to do it. All right. Thank you for listening to Food, Wine, and the Culinary Mind. Find us on all things social at Culinary Mindcast and on the web, canelasf.com backslash podcast. Don't forget to rate us where you found us.